You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean O-Line Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to another episode of Black Arm of the Law. I'm your host, the one and only Carl Payne, black like ever. Black like I never left. You dig what I'm saying? Black as always, black forever. Uh, today's uh, special guest, special, special guest, man. I'm super excited to have him on. I love his energy. Uh, today's guest is the one and only Dr. DeLacy Davis. Round of applause, round of applause. Born in Harlem, raised in Newark, New Jersey. Um, yes. Tell me about your journey. Let's start off. Let's start off talking about, uh, you, you mentioned already, you said that the, the only reason you wanted to join the police force was to uh, to uh, fund your music career. Talk to me about that. That's it. I'm a percussionist. I'm a self-taught musician. My mother said at nine years old, I was beating on everything in the house. I was beating pots, pans, books, the wall. So she bought me a kunga. I played that conga till I cracked it and broke it. And, you know, back in the day, you know, grandma played the numbers. So whenever you wanted something, you went to grandma because she was going to dream up a number. And sure enough, my grandmother dreamt up a number, won $200 and gave me $114 to go to Rondo's Music on Route 22 in Union. And I bought my first fiberglass conga. And I was ecstatic that I had a fiberglass Latin percussion conga. I played that. And so I taught myself how to play. I started playing it with bands at 10, 11 years old traveling and playing in the bars. And, you know, my dad's attitude was to my mom said, well, if he's going to be in the bars, you're going to have to go with him because I don't know why you would let him play in a bar at 10. But I did. And so when it was time to go to high school, I'd been to Catholic school, didn't do well there, didn't like Catholic school. So my mother said, you're going to get into a specialized school or you're going to a boys Catholic school. And so six months before graduating the eighth grade, I started teaching myself, went to the library and started teaching myself how to draw. And so I took the test to get into arts high school in Newark, New Jersey, the first performing mm. arts high school in the country. I was one of 100 students that beat out the other 900. I averaged a B in, uh, in art, but I hated drawing every day first thing in the morning for two periods because I wanted to be an artiste. Right? I wanted to draw when I was inspired. And that wasn't working. There. They're like, the hell with that. You're going to draw every day for two periods or you're going to fail this class. Right. And so I knew I could play kungas. And so I decided I wanted to test over and become a music major. So I started hanging around the musicians, but I couldn't read music and you needed to learn how to read. So you know what I did? I went to the library, got the book, started teaching myself to read music, started hanging with the drummers. I had to transfer out of the school with my parents' approval. Then I had to get permission to take the test as a music major with the understanding that if I failed, I need to go to the local high school. I took the test. I got straight A's in music theory, straight A's in music, and the rest is history. Took me all over the world. Wow. Wow. Tell me, tell me about some of the best, uh, some of your fondest memories and places that you've uh, played. So I've been to Ireland, Scotland, England, Belgium, Wales, Russia, Spain, Guadeloupe, Jamaica, South Africa, Nepopostrovsky, 
Uh, I'm my sorry. Daughter's That's got a lot of syllables. Say that one more time. Nepa Petrovsky. That's a part. Of, it was a part of the Soviet Union. It's Russia. Wow. And so we went in through St. Petersburg. And so my daughter's mother also sang and she was in the band. And so she mm. she cut her deals under the name DeLacy, which is just spelled slightly different. D apostrophe or D.E. apostrophe L.A.C.Y. So in 1995, we had our hit record Hideaway, which is still a club classic. And that took us to the top of the pop charts for 14 straight weeks. And that took us all over. So I was excited about that because we had a hit record all over Europe and nobody in America ever heard of us, ever. Wow, wow. And so that's exciting, right? Because what I realized early on is that you could travel all over the world and still no one know that you're all over the world and you not even touch America because America is just a small blip on the radar. But we don't know that when you don't get out the neighborhood. Right. Plus, you know, they pump America like we the we the biggest like we the biggest island on the map. You know, what I'm saying? And we're not. They, they pump us we're, up. Yeah, I know. No, we're, we're we're little. You know that. <laughs> you know, so so exciting for me. You know, we opened. I played with a group called Blaze on Motown. They were the ones that also mm-hmm. did a record. But we traveled um, opening for Bobby Brown. We played Wembley Arena. That was exciting. Um, spent several weeks in, in England and her deal was signed in the UK. So I traveled about 20 times back and forth to, to London, England. And then uh, my police work also took me back to London, England, because I came, I became one of the youngest presidents of the National Black Police Association. And so I was also the international representative going to the UK, Bermuda and Jamaica. Now, and so you were doing this at the same time you were uh, on the force? Absolutely. Wow. That's what got wow. me in trouble. I'm a creative, you know? Yeah, I'm, I was going to say, how did you, you get away with that? Like, how, how did you get away with being able to uh, take the time to do that? So one of the things, that's a, lot, that's a lot, of, lot, of, lot of doctor's notes. Well, what, I, what happened at the time, um, I, rather than take overtime, I learned early that you could get addicted to the overtime. So rather than take overtime, I took compensatory time. So, for example, when I retired, we only had, by the time I retired, we were only getting 26 days a year. And I had 220 days accumulated when I retired in 20 years because I loved coming to work. I loved working in the community. I loved working with black and brown people. So I wasn't the guy burning all my time. Additionally, I would use my vacation time to do all of that. So if Mm. I needed to travel, I would work it out so that I was traveling during vacation. So I would never take vacation until it was time to do music or to lecture somewhere. And then I would take my time that I had accumulated. That's smart. (laughs) They couldn't even catch you if they wanted to. That's hot. They, That's they hot. tried. So you figure, Carl, I came on with 40 cops. Of the 40, 18 were black. Of the 18 of us, only two of us had college degrees. And one of the things that the literature said then, 20-something years ago, was that college-educated police officers struggled on the police force. One, because we were not prone to take orders, especially orders that didn't make damn good sense. And we were trained right. and taught to think critically and analytically. Like, I was able to get a master's degree while on the police force. And by the time the mayor realized I had gotten it, they tried to stop paying on it. But I'd already gotten the degree and graduated with a 4.0 GPA. And then I sued them to make them pay it. Right. Now, let's, now let's talk about this, this, the, the lawsuit. What happened with the lawsuit? Get into that. Well, they what happened, I, I was able to convince the prosecutor in the county to let us use drug um, forfeiture money and my chief of police to let us use the drug forfeiture money to pay for the officers in community services to get better education so I could send them to college. So mm-hmm. I didn't send me first. I sent my team. You know, if you're the leader, you should always go down with the ship. So you send your people first and you send the community. 
So I sent two officers to be trained at Fairleigh Dickinson University. They went into a regular bachelor's degree program, and the city paid for their courses, not realizing that I was going to come right behind them. Now, they'd already paid for two courses for each of them. I came behind them and accelerated my training. I went. I took five-week courses that were eight hours every Saturday for five straight weeks. That was a 40-hour class. I took one of those, two of those a semester. I took a regular course during the week, and then I took a weekend course. And then I would use my vacation to fly to London, England, and take an accelerated class that would give you full three college credits. And by the time they realized that I had done all of that, I was already graduating, and they were trying to keep from paying the bill. <laughs> no, so no, no. How was this? How was this useful, though? Like, you know, and what, what we ways were, was this beneficial? Because we were we were running community services. So when I took over, it used to be called community policing or um, community relations department. So a new mm-hmm. chief came in after winning a federal discrimination lawsuit and said, "Listen, I'm going to promote you to sergeant, but I need you to do all that stuff that you talked as black cops against police brutality. I need you to do all of that BS out in the community." And I'm going to give you two weeks to do it. And so he gave me the unit used to have 40 cops. He cut it from 40 cops to two cops and said, you're going to have to build relationships in the community. So what I said to him is that then we're going to need to have officers with a certain level of education and understanding of the community. So we went from 12 youth programs and 150 kids to 33 community based programs. We grew it from 150 kids to 2,600 kids, raised $1.3 million, and reduced juvenile crime by 33% over a three-year period. So that education allowed us to build relationships. It allowed us to have a better understanding of the systems that we were in. And it also gave my team the confidence that they needed to take an assignment and to follow it from beginning to end, which was a logical conclusion of achieving our goals. Now let's work backwards. You said originally there were how many people in the program? 150 children in the in the police athletic league okay now who who suggested that this program be put into effect to begin with or is this where you were assigned right that's where i was assigned exactly the chief of police assigned me there okay so from this from this assignment you came up with the idea with my team absolutely okay that is awesome that is awesome. Now, now, so so speaking of, because uh, because as you said, a lot of people, and this is you know on, on previous shows we've had this conversation where a lot of, a lot of cops, a lot of law enforcement, uh, policing the communities that they don't come from and they don't have any right. idea, they don't have any connection to them, they don't have uh, any roots or any, any type of, you know, there's no foundation, there's no basis, there's nothing, and so there's a there's a disconnect mm-hmm. between. The, the community that you're policing. And so um, is that one of the reasons why you felt it important to uh, implement this type of program? Absolutely. So one of the things that I thought was going to happen when I took the job in the department was that I was going to have to live in a city. So I immediately bought a house in the neighborhood where I walked the beat. I also, at the time, that was the year that the uh, Mazda Miata came out, 1990. And so I would park my convertible on my beat with the top down and they would throw garbage in my car every day. And so folks would say, well, why do you leave the top down? I said, because I wanted the community to understand that I was committed to getting to know the community and trusting the very same community that I was asking to trust me. And so I knew that as less garbage was thrown in my car, I was earning the respect of the residents in that community. And that's what I did. 
So, for example, I ran the domestic violence response team in that city that initially was being run by a white lieutenant, white sergeant, and they couldn't get anybody, any volunteers to run the team. They gave me the assignment in this, as a sergeant, and within a couple of months' time, we were running it around the clock, 18 team members, including one man. We were servicing in one year 900 victims of domestic violence in a year. Because I was connected to the community. I was running wow. the block associations, the tenant associations, and empowering the people. I'm also, I was a hostage negotiator, firearms instructor, crisis intervention. So, for example, on my day off, we had a young lady that was hit by a truck and dragged under the wheel, 12 years old, and the mother wouldn't let the body go. I get the call on a Saturday on my day off. I live eight minutes from the community. I drive there, and I sit on the curb with the mother and console her until she's ready to let her child go. Because I got nothing but time, number one, and I'm in the community. So she allowed me to come and console her. And so once her pastor showed up, I was able to convince him to walk her away from the baby. Then we lifted the truck and pulled the baby from under there and put her on a gurney. So that it has some, there's a lot to be said about being connected to the community. Right. So what, what do you think is the key, though, to getting uh, officers to have the same sentiment, to have the same investment or, or, you know, level of care that you have for the community? So I, I think there are a couple of things. One is, you know, there's an axiom that we use in leadership training that what gets rewarded gets done. So if you get rewarded to see no evil, hear no evil and speak no evil, then that's what you do. In order to get to the level of care, the attitude of the office on the street is a reflection of the leadership at the top. The top has to have an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of humility and connection to the community. Um, the, very often, especially in law enforcement, it's a political job at the top. And so the politics often takes over from real police work. You know, I, I tell people all the time, why don't we just police black and brown and poor communities the way you want your mama's community policed? See, folks want their mama. It's easy when we think of how it happens in suburban white communities, affluent communities, and your mama's community. You wouldn't care what your mama did. Even if she was dead wrong, you wanted to be treated with dignity and respect. But yet my mama becomes the B word, the N word, and all the other words. And so at the end of the day, law enforcement has to take a deep, hard look at itself and its practices. We know that it emerges in the South out of slave patrols and in the North, um, it's social control. But at the end of the day, law enforcement is a lot more controlled and disciplined than it has been in our community, as evidenced by January 6th, because they only fired one bullet in an environment that was absolutely necessary to use deadly force and everybody restrained themselves. Yet in our community, when you're black, walking while black, talking while black, eating, sleeping, colleging, driving or shopping while black, we get gunned down unarmed. And we always the answer always was I was in fear of losing my life. No, you don't give a damn about our lives, which is why you have no problem taking it. So why do you think that is? Why do you think uh, January 6th happened the way it did? Uh, I think because um, I, I'll, I'll explain it, the, the discipline this way. Um, I think it was Paducah, Kansas or Kentucky, wherever Paducah is, I can't remember. But um, there, were, there was some years ago, uh, two white kids, about 11 and 13, pulled the fire alarm at a school, and then they were gunning down their classmates as they exited the building. And the police officer that chased them down in the woods, he said as he was chasing them, every time he raised his gun to open fire, he couldn't shoot at them because they reminded him of his own children. 
That's compassion and that's empathy. I think that what happens is that, unfortunately, in this country, and especially in law enforcement, and not just white officers, but criminals have a black and brown face very frequently. And so people are not as inclined to be compassionate and to be um, disciplined when it comes to working with our community. I think that historically and traditionally, it has always been in law enforcement about controlling the movements of black and brown bodies, period. And not much has changed. You know, Dr. Francis Cress Wells, he talked about the nine people area activities that are dominated by racism and white supremacy and says if we really want change and fairness and we have to get in these institutions and reform them, change them or tear them down and rebuild them so that they're fair. And their economics, education, entertainment, um, labor, law, politics, religion, sex and war. And so this is just one of those areas where it's always been controlling black and brown people. And so for, I think for some of my black colleagues, um, they're in denial. Some of them will not face the fact. I mean, yeah, I got cousins that are criminals and relatives who are criminals and they should be punished. But they should not be punished at the hands of a judge, jury and executioner with a badge and a gun on the street. And therein lies the difference. So so here's my issue. Right. Or here's 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 the thing that I think about. Right. Because we know we know in our culture, the black culture, we are taught the uh, ideal for the most part to do the right thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we're taught I mean, we're taught this in a large part in in, in a capacity of of humanity as well, rather than race. Mm -hmm. Period. Now, the problem is that there's a there's a general acceptance of theory that racism is taught. And and the reality is that most of America's racism usually involves people of of the white race. I'm just Mm going to say that against Mm -hmm. uh, those of, of the, you know, of color. And as we know, in this country, black people are dis- disproportionately affected by racism and systemic oppression. Now, knowing mm-hmm. this information as a black officer, uh, official, how, how can the duality, you know, of uh, uh, being because because here's the problem. At what point do black officers not realize or remember that they still black? At what point do they go, oh, I'm wearing blue now, so I'm them? Or I'm on the other side versus, no, I still got to continue the fight from within. I still have to be able to do the right thing. You, you, you understand my question? Oh, I understand your question speaks to the heart of um, the spook who sits by the door. Your, your question speaks to the heart of um, double marginality, which is a term that's now been coined in criminology, or as um, um, uh, Dubois calls it, double consciousness, um, the two-ness. Mm-hmm. The idea double marginality is about black being belonging to both the group of being black and the profession of law enforcement. And double consciousness is about being black, but seeing yourself through the eyes of someone else. At the end of the day, I call it confused Negro syndrome. Black people in positions of authority more concerned with doing the white thing than doing the right thing. And what I mean by that is that um, you say at what point does a black officer understand what their position should be when black people don't allow you to come amongst them and feel comfortable? Right. So at the end of the day, what has happened is that we've been permitted in the profession to compromise, to sell out, um, to to marginalize, to make excuses and then say, but if you weren't doing this, this wouldn't be the outcome. The social reality is that we don't accidentally shoot white folks. We don't shoot them even when they can be shot, which is what I said about January 6th. And so at the end of the day, black officers do not have that argument to make either. In fact, I think that black officers um, have gotten become what I call comfort corrupt. 
It's comfortable. Think about this. This is one of the few professions where you determine whether a person lives or dies. The only other one is the doctors. And the monsters for the doctors is do no harm. The monsters for law enforcement is supposed to be protect and serve. The question is protect whom and serving what? At the end of the day, for black folks, we're not getting protection and we are being served a high, hard one and a cold one and very often by us. In fact, just having black officers on the force doesn't mean you're going to get treated well because they're on the force. Because let's remember, they're in a institution that is inherently racist. It's white male dominated, racist, sexist, homophobic. And then you might find good cops. Right. Right. So so my point is, so so at what when did they drink the Kool-Aid? Like, you understand what I'm they saying? Drink the, so, uh, yeah, they drink the Kool-Aid when I could go think about it from this perspective. I drink the Kool-Aid when I recognize that I come on with a high school diploma or a GED and I can make $100,000 a year. Don't rock. Just don't rock the boat. I drink the Kool-Aid when I recognize that it allows me to change my conditions, which is why I said comfort corrupt, because I could go from living on this part of the block to moving on up mm. to the east side. See, see, everyone asks this question, whether it's law enforcement or anywhere else, what's in it for me? And unfortunately, when you're disconnected from your roots, when you're disconnected from the very foundation that permits you to be who you are, then it is very easy for someone to tell you who you are when you don't practice that second principle of Kwanzaa, Kuji Chagalia, self-determination to name, create, define, and speak for yourself rather than allow others to do it for you. So, so then... I, I, from, from what I hear you saying, what, what I hear you saying is a lot of them. And when I say them, I'm speaking of other black and brown officers who have already <laughs> been, for lack of a better word, I don't want to say brainwashed, but uh, 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 it's like it's like you're already. Hell, I'm going to say tainted when you when you get in. Right. So it, you are. Yeah. You, you, I mean, it makes sense what I'm saying. Right. It's like it's yes. like if you if you you know, because we all live in the real world, we all live out here and, and, and we've we've been subject to society. We've been subject to the different uh, aspects of what has been put upon us, even as you said, since slavery passed down generational, uh, you know, and, and, and so when you. I can I can definitely see what you're saying. So they get in there. They already had a don't rock the boat mentality, <laughs> you know, because not right. everybody not everybody has a, a, is a revolutionary or even have that that instinct within them to say, mm, yeah, this ain't right. And I, ain't, I ain't about this. Shit. Now, I, that's I one side that. of it. There's another component of it is that when you get black officers like Carrie O'Horn in Buffalo, um, Buffalo, New York where 11 or 12 years ago, her white partner punched a handcuffed black man in the face and she told him to stop because he was cuffed and the fight is over and he continued. And so she tried to get her partner off of this black man and he punched her in the face, flipped her and the department terminated her. So it's taken these 12 years now when she lost her pension, lost everything. She had to become a truck driver and take any kind of job she could just to feed her four children. And so the other side of that argument is this. When our white counterparts commit crimes, lose their jobs, get suspended, lose their income, what we find is that the unions and other officers make sure that their families are provided for. In our community, if you risk it all and you begin to lose it, a joker step back from you and say, damn, why'd that fool sacrifice all of that? 
So you've got that other component. It's the economics that I just talked about, right? We are not pooling our resources and utilizing our resources in such a way that when a black officer comes forward or a brown officer and puts it all on the line, we ensure that they're okay and that they're safe. I was fortunate. I had a community that to this day still embraces me, but that was rare. And I understood the rarity of it by virtue of the fact that it doesn't happen to a lot of black and brown officers. So is that part of what your uh, what your organization is about? Is that part of why you did that, or is that is that a part of it that where other officers feel like, okay, I got somebody that has I have some I have an organization that actually has my back when I decide to do the right thing? No, well, we 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 became Black Cops Against Police Brutality to be the conscience of the criminal justice system to improve community police relations, and to improve the quality of life for African people. That was our goal. And so right. annually, for thir- 12 out of 13 years, we had an annual Kwanzaa celebration where we brought in Dick Gregory, Congressman Payne, Minister Farrakhan, um, Dr. Joy DeGruy. I mean, we were exposing our people. We were feeding them, charging $10 and catering a full meal, having a children's village, and exposing them to Ben Chavis. Every person in our community of influence we brought to the community and charged them little of nothing, but we also stood up. So, for example, we handled the Lionel Tate case. That was the youngest person in the history of the United States of America to be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole at 12 years of age. Did a wrestling move in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, killed his six-year-old cousin Tiffany Eunuch, and they sentenced him to life at 12 without the possibility of parole. We were involved with that case for some seven years um, as a result of our involvement, going to Rome, Italy, meeting with Pope John Paul II and a delegation under our wings delegation that went with 33 parents of children who were in the same system across the United States. Johnny Cochran took the case, the, the appeal, and I walked him out of jail January 26, 2004, three years later. I stayed involved in his life. I didn't know Lionel. I didn't know his mother. I didn't know anyone involved, but I got a phone call. And we got on a plane. So that's the kind of work we've done with the organization. We did some work around Amadou Diallo. So whenever we've gotten a call, the first question we've always said, whether it was law enforcement or the community, we want to make sure that we're right. The second thing was that don't ask me to do what you're unwilling to do or what you don't do. And the third thing was don't take from my table what you're unwilling to bring back to the table because we call in our markers. And when I call on you as a police officer looking for assistance, I'm expecting you to do for the community what we did for you, period. So this was started in 1991. How many how many officers as it grew? I can't tell you that number, but what I can't but what I can tell you is that I started. It looked like there was 25 of us, but two of us were officers and other 23 were my cousins and friends. I just had them all dressed like (laughs) us and told them not to talk to the press. (laughs) It took us a couple of years to get cops. It took us a few years before cops. It had we had to make it marketable. So in 1995, Ted Koppel did a special America in black and white, the story of a black cop to Lacey Davis. And so by then it was popular. And folks wanted to join, but then we were being very careful about who we let through the door. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to because you don't. You don't, I mean, and and that's the whole. Pro- See, here's the thing. That's the whole thing. You know, the vetting process, which is the same problem with, with, that I have with law enforcement right now. I think the vetting process has to change. You know, you don't know who you're letting through the door. That's true. However, you what you do know is um. So so let me no let me back up. Let me disagree with you slightly. They purport not to know who they're letting through the door. 
But what we do know, for I'll just name uh, one count, um, a Mercer County, Mercer County Police Department, you know that when 15 white officers give you the same address in the same black community and it's not an apartment building, clearly they're all using one address to get this job. And people in internal affairs are looking the other way. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so so what, what's interesting to me, and what I would what I would hope is that you know, let's talk about let's talk about a couple of things, right? Let's talk about accountability, because Excellent. the the, the, pro, the problem that I see, and I'm pretty sure a lot of, you know a lot of others see as well, is that there's no accountability, mm-hmm. right? You know, policing themselves or in general not having any type of outside agency to conduct this type of policing. So what does police reform in this in this sense look like to, for you? I knew you would ask that question. I had a feeling. So I had my answer sitting in front of me. Right. Good. So at the federal Good. level, we're talking about trauma informed policing as a standard um, consent mm-hmm. decrees being reinstated, which was which was um, stopped under Trump pattern and practice investigations of police departments. We were successful with one in New Haven, Connecticut, with um, the killing of Malik Jones. Um, address qualified immunity so that police officers, it was never intended for police officers to be protected in the way that they're being protected with qualified immunity. We need whistleblower protection for good police officers. If you can, if you can protect Samity Bull Gravano, who killed 19 people and avowed killed 19 people, but you gave him a, a pass on it to give up his boss, John Gotti, then why aren't we protecting good police officers that want to expose the bad ones? We need to ban chokeholds in any stress positions, even though um, what was done to George Floyd was absolutely heinous and unconscionable. It wasn't a chokehold. It was a knee to the neck. And so we get caught up looking the wrong way, talking about banning chokeholds, when in reality that was a knee to a neck and a stress position. So we need to ban stress positions in addition to chokeholds, we need to divest and reallocate police budgets, make elected officials, ex- make accepting union dollars, campaign dollars from unions for elected officials toxic. We need to punish those elected officials who accept FOP and PBA dollars and then turn around and allow them to kill us in the street. And then finally, federally, we need accountability for law enforcement agencies via economic incentives to shift their policy. That's just the federal stuff. And what would those incentives be? So, for example, they're trying it now. So so I'll give you an example. Uniform Crime Report, which is the federal reporting arm that the FBI manages, where each police department is expected to report um, their crimes, um, their hate crimes, and a whole list of crimes that go there. There are eight, roughly 18,000 police departments, nearly a million police officers, and only about 20% of all the police departments participate. So if, in fact, you refuse to give your numbers, then we'll refuse to give you federal dollars. Simple. You won't get federal money. We won't give you surplus money. We also won't let you militarize your department by using um, surplus military equipment in your community. Tanks and helicopters and things that people just don't need, right? Drones. So that's what it would look like in terms of incentivize or de-incentivizing those folks that don't want to follow the line. Additionally, we need special prosecutors to invest use of force cases and police shootings and nothing else but that so that they're not having this unholy alliance that Johnny Cochran used to talk about where the prosecutor needs police officers to prosecute cases and prosecutors get promoted in advance based upon their conviction rate. And so if I need a police officer to get a conviction, then why in the world do you think that they would help me get convictions if I'm prosecuting cops? 
So we need a special prosecutor who deals with that and that alone. We have to change the deadly force standard from reasonable to necessary. Currently, it's a reasonable standard, and California is attempting to change the law so that it says necessary standard, and then license police officers as a requirement for working in a state. So that if you kill somebody in this state and lose your license, you can't go to another job. It just doesn't work that way. Me as a professional, when I'm training and lecturing, I have to get professional liability insurance. And if, in fact, I can't carry professional liability insurance, I can't go and train in certain places. Why? Because they want to make sure that they, that you're covered under the insurance policy. It's simple. So why aren't we doing that? I understand because the lobby for law enforcement is much more powerful than the damn outcry and the political will of those who claim to represent our communities. And then we have to examine the police academies and what they're teaching and the curriculum, but also evaluate the academy dismissals by race, ethnicity, gender, and to re review the reasons like firearms and physical training that weeds out black and brown people, especially the women, because I think women bring a very different experience. We already know from the research and the data that women shoot less than men on the police force. Yet, we're not jumping at the bit to bring women onto the police force. That's just some of it. So, but hey, listen, you know, if if I could have slowed it down, we would have jumped into every single one of those things. <laughs> no, but no, but I think I think you brought a lot of good good points. I think you you bring up a lot of good points. Um, just recently, uh, you know, the Maryland Police Department, Maryland State Police, you know, they've they've come under fire, um, you know, accusations of racism and, and discrimination being made by some of their black officers. I mean, as of two thousand twenty one, there are more than 1,400 troopers. Now, of those, more than 1,200 are white and 172 are black. Mm -hmm. In the past three years, there have been 79 discipline cases against black officers since 2018. Discipline against white officers decreased, reaching its lowest in 2020, 2020 while discipline against black officers rose in that same time period. Now, the leader of the MSP department will go before state lawmakers Thursday to address the allegations. Data points to some disciplinaries and treatments of the departments, black and white officers, but the department flat out denies the allegations. So we got numbers, we got paper, we got trail, we got everything, but... Neither of us are psychics, but I mean, based on your experience in the field, I mean, what would you predict, you know, predict to happen once these allegations are addressed to the law? Well, I think because I've done work in the Baltimore City with Dr. Tyrone Powers, who's one of my guys on the ground there, former state Maryland state trooper, former um, FBI agent. And mm -hmm. so I know that Senator Jill Carter, who's in the who's in, in the um, legislature down there, uh, she's going to take them to task. And I think she's eminently qualified to do so. Um, okay. I remember state's attorney, um, Jessamy, I think her name was Patricia Jessamy. She threw out some 29,000 stop and frisk arrests, if you will, in Baltimore City because they were not grounded in anything constitutional. So I'm not surprised that the leader would say that it's not true because folks tell you they told us with Rodney King, don't believe your lying eyes. And right, so, right. They're not actually hitting him. If you see, right. they're 
He, they said they said he was driving a Hyundai that was exceeding 90 miles an hour. Impossible. I had a Hyundai. They didn't go that fast, right? You could on a hill to 50. Yeah, if you got it to 55, you were lucky, right? So what I'm saying and suggesting is that this is no different than what we've always seen. It's more of the same. I think that anything that we get, we have to fight for. The National Black Police Association was founded in 1972, not only because the black community was experiencing what it was experiencing, but also black officers. It was a disparity in treatment. Women were being mistreated. Women weren't being let on the force. Black officers were being punished disproportionately to white officers committing lesser crime. And so nothing has changed, which has been my main argument. And what I've said to black officers is that if you find the courage, just find the testicular fortitude to stand up and fight back. And if you don't have the testicular fortitude to fight back, at least do like your white counterparts do and give us your money so those of us who are willing to fight could at least fight and you'll still enjoy the benefit. Facts. Facts. The police unions all endorsed the previous president and black officers weren't even consulted in many places about it. And only two departments that I know of that pushed back on it. Philadelphia black police officers pushed back the Guardian Civic League. And in Chicago, um, Sean Kennedy and the black officers there pushed back. Everybody else took it lying down. How do you so let them take your union dues and use them against you? So basically, but well, well, it, as you said, it goes to the leaders, right? It starts at Absolutely. the top. And then it's about economics. All, all I'll say is this. We've got a there. There is a blueprint offline. We were talking about a black agenda. And, yes. and, and the question is around who gets to set it? What does it look like? Um, us understanding that black people are not a monolith. And so we have a range of feelings and emotions, but we've got to commit to some very key and fundamental things. For example, my talking to you, you guys reached out, but my talking to you was grounded in you being a black man, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Right. Had not heard. I've not heard on this side of things what your position was going to be, what your posture was going to be. And I really didn't care. We could have been diametrically opposed. For me, at the heart of it was two black men have an opportunity to have an intelligent conversation about their perspectives on the world relative to law enforcement. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Mm -hmm. But we've got to get to that place in space. We don't have like when I said to you, I'm going to push back slightly. We don't have to agree on everything. I call it the Malcolm philosophy where we agree. We should work together where we disagree. If I can't help you, I won't hurt you, but I won't work against you. You just know, hey, DeLacy's not going to work on this part of this project. He doesn't agree with this. I've got a friend that's an anti-vaxxer. I'm vaccine hesitant. Some folks said to me, do you know so-and-so was at the rally on the 6th? I said, really? So, of course, I called so-and-so, a black person. And he says, no, I was at a health rally that was down there. But that wasn't what I was there about. And, and they said I wasn't at the Capitol. And what I said to people is that I said, if we can be vaccine hesitant and we can be um, against vaccines, we also have to support those that are supporting it. So there's going to be diametrically opposing perspectives, and we have to be respectful of those differences. And I think we get caught up in the trap of, if I don't agree with you on one thing, then you and I are enemies for life. Our white counterparts who can hate each other will come together to fight us. And they do. And they're consistent with it in law enforcement. And so what I'm saying to black folks is, I mean, there are black folks that don't like me, and I get it. They're black. If you had said you were going to put a three or four black cops on with me who have been around a minute and they don't lean in this direction, they're like, no, nah, that's OK. I'll come on before him or after him. And the reason is because their position cannot be defended. 
And they know that I would call them out in front of our community. When I first started speaking, le lecturing in the community, Carl, this is what I would say when I went public. I said, if I betray the trust that you have placed in me, you should kill me where I stand. Folks were like, whoa. Because it's not lost a day after, well, two days now since Malcolm X's birthday. It is not lost on the idea that the night that he was assassinated, that the person giving him CPR, even though he had holes in his chest, was an FBI agent. It's not lost that there's a new investigation into his killing now because now we may get an opportunity to know what role the government really played in all of this. So they're using black officers often to do this kind of stuff. I talked to a female officer who said to me, called me a couple of years ago. She says, um, Sergeant Davis, you know, I, I think you were right. You know, they used me to go and do buy, buy and bust as a black female, but they put the white female inside to make rank. I said, yeah, because they're pimping you out. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, I've heard this. I've heard this from, you, you, you know, you're speaking the truth. And, and, and this is the this is the point of this. Right. So this is the point of this dialogue and, and the fact that I, this this even exists, because, you know, you, you you're right. You have you have police officers on, on one side and you have the public on the other side who have uh, notions of or preconceived, I should say, notions of what things are or how things are or, you know, whatever. And, and the point of this is to say, OK, this is to give new insight better insight yeah. into yeah. Uh, 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 your, you know, I don't want to say your side, but the other side, right? The other side Correct. of things to where, you know, there's a better, to gain a better understanding because the overall goal is to bridge the gap. The overall yeah. goal is to make things better. And, and as you said, whether, whether we can, we can, we can agree to disagree on certain things as long as we agree right. on the overall goal is for us to come yeah. together and make yeah. things better for, for us all. Uh, and, and I've heard that same narrative many times to where it's like, yeah, you're in the, you're in it and you're in the system. And so you don't even realize that you're being used because, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're going to put you in a neighborhood. Yeah. You're going to work your neighborhood and you're going to do this and that and the other. And we're going to have you. Uh, 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 yeah, you, you're going to go undercover and you're going to be, you right. know, you didn't ran the ball 99 yards, but I'm, let, let me give this person the, the touchdown glory. That's right. That's right. And, and I remember I was just talking to a lieutenant that pinned me when I made sergeant and he was the lieutenant in charge of narcotics when I first got on the job. And I asked him, could I work undercover? And he told me under no circumstances will you ever be allowed to work undercover as long as I'm the commander. And I didn't understand it then black guy. And I asked him why he said, cause I knew you were college educated. I knew that they you'd be run ragged down there doing just that. And I wanted you to have an opportunity to advance. Those of us that sacrifice, we sacrifice for young officers like you coming behind us could make it up the ranks. Now, unfortunately, I did I got stuck at number three on the list at lieutenant because the mayor at the time told me point blank, I'll never promote you. Ever. So you might as well put your papers in. And I took him up on his advice. A black mayor, next month I put my papers in. And I was done. And folks said to me, why? I said, because when you wake up one day and you want to do harm to the mayor and the chief and they both black and you're black, it's time to go. Now, people ask, do you regret it? Because I retired in 06. I said, not at all, because I'm still doing the same work, if not more, that I was doing while on the force. The difference now is that I'm an expert in my field. The difference now is that they got to come to me for this information. Like when I anticipated you would ask me, what does reform look like? So I pulled out my recommendations for federal, state and local. Why? Because on the police force, I wouldn't have access to this and I wouldn't have the ability to do this. And I'd have to run it through somebody to have permission to talk here. I can say this is what it is. 
This is what I've studied. This is what's going on. You've heard me name a couple of different departments around the country because I'm still in touch with these people. Law enforcement does not like independent thinkers. Not if you're black and brown. Mm. Say that one more time. Please say that out loud. Law enforcement does not like independent thinkers if you're black and brown, especially. But my research was examining police use of force, examining factors relating to police shooting unarmed black males. And I used two theoretical frameworks. One was a broken windows theory, which basically holds that incivility and social disorder leads to crime. And therefore, you must stop the small quality of life crimes. Otherwise, the bigger crimes will occur. But my secondary theory was standpoint theory by William Hegel, Hegel, which is 1807. And he was studying the slave master relationship and how power and knowledge is acquired and utilized. And what was the caveat was he said that the perspective of the oppressed is much more accurate than the perspective of the oppressor. And our people on law enforcement who are black and brown have gotten that confused because they don't even want to know. it. They just want to go along to get along. And when they want one, they send one to get one. And a Negro that looks like you and me is in the corner talking about, I get them for you, boss. And that cannot be acceptable. I said, who that damn nigga up on that nag? <laughs> oh, they killing us, boss. They killing us. KRS-One wrote it. Officer, overseer. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so we have to challenge us. I tell people every day that I went to work and every day today, I have to fight the slave in me. Every day. It's not accidental. And that's and that's the conditioning. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I was saying before when I said some of some enter into it already conditioned. That's right. So you're right. It's not much. It's not much to lead the horse down the down the path that's already going down the path. Um, real quick. Thoughts on this on this, because uh, we were talking about this and this this came to mind. You know, a lot of people thought that with the use of cell phones and, and even body cam, you know, that this would make a difference. Uh, I mean, we got video, we got, we got straight video, but hasn't seemed to make a lot of difference. In my opinion, hasn't seemed to have made much of a difference. What are your thoughts on this? And, and why? So I'll start with the, I'll start with the latter first. So I, I would so I would disagree with you completely on both um, generally that I would disagree that it has not made a difference that we believe we see measurably. I would argue that the reason that you have a Black Lives Matter movement and the reason that you have folks of all different races who have joined the movement is because cell phones have made a difference and because we could see what before we had to hear about, read about, and think about, and hallucinate. But because people have seen it, it has activated young people who I am very proud of in the streets. In terms of body cameras, I would agree with you and say that while there is some research that suggests the first study of New York City Police Department, NYPD, was done by Dr. Keyshawn Hickman, who's actually also a lieutenant there and a young brother who is 40 years old now, but he sat on my committee for my dissertation. And so what we saw was that that study suggested that the video camera actually reduced complaints against officers because very often officers, the complaints against officers is around um, demeanor and their general behavior with the public cursing, disrespecting, striking. Um, but I think that to the extent that we believe that video cameras was going to stop that misbehavior, 
I agree with you. It does not, and it has not, because some officers know they're on camera, and they do even worse. They don't care. And that's partly because the account, the thing that you raise, accountability, right? If folks are not looking at the cameras and randomly selecting and pulling out the misbehavior and holding people accountable for it, well, hell, the camera doesn't change anybody's behavior. And that's that was my point that, you know, uh, I, I haven't seen much of a change in behavior. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I think that <clears throat> I think the one thing I will agree with you on is, yes, I think, you know, especially it was a number of it was a number of circumstances that all came together to create the perfect storm, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in terms of, OK, the pandemic you know, there were there were these different things that led the way to say now everybody's paying attention mm-hmm. because it's not something that hasn't been happening. It's not something that hasn't already happened a thousand times or more. But now everybody's paying attention and we, we're not being distracted. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of other distractions. So we're uh, say, yes, OK. Now you got your white counterparts. A lot of white counterparts are going, I didn't know. You're like, I've been telling you this forever. We all been saying the same goddamn thing. That's right. We all been saying the same damn thing. And so, but the the problem for me is, okay, so now you know. And if you're, and to me, you're just as guilty if you, anybody of any color, but especially the white people I'm talking about right now. Mm-hmm. You're just as guilty if you don't say nothing, if you don't do nothing, if you're going to keep quiet about it. So what is your exactly. skin in the game? What's what's your what's your skin in the game? Now what? Now what you going to do? You know, are you going to go along to get along as well? And so in that aspect, what should we be what should we be expecting or demanding? What should be we be expecting or demanding of our current administration, including and and I want you to start with local, right? As you said before, right? Because it starts locally, right? It starts locally, and then and then go up the ladder. Well, locally, we could talk about civilian oversight, review boards with subpoena power, investigative power, and the budget attached to the police department's budget by percentage, not by specific dollar amount. Uh, And then we could talk about what those boards look like, the composition. Uh, redirecting, redirecting the funds and the resources to social services, mental health, homelessness, rehabilitation, and domestic violence supports, because all of those adversely and disproportionately impact our community. Um, mm-hmm. We need mental health first aid training in our community for law enforcement and anybody that's dealing. So, for example, Baltimore used to have a trauma unit that would have law enforcement, um, behavioralist therapists, Um, intervention crisis experts all around the table so you know what you're looking at as opposed to drawing your gun. When you send a police officer to a situation that's clearly a mental health crisis, you have limited the options. One, you probably send somebody that doesn't have the training I have, so they're already stuck. Two, if the person has an aversion to law enforcement, even with a mental health crisis, they may have an aversion to the gun, the badge, and the closing, the close proximity. And so now they're going to go into fight or flight mode. And the officer, all they got is a taser, if they're lucky, OC spray and a gun. None of those stories end well. And therefore, you created a disadvantage in our community. So the community mm-hmm. locally should be saying, what's going on with those with mental health crises in our community and how do we respond to them? So let's reduce the reliance on police officers for everything that occurs in the community. We should use evidence-based strategies to address community police issues. 
additionally, we have to understand uh, police officers as violence interrupters, right? That's what they're for. And so in Newark, for example, Raz Baraka, my mayor here, and a colleague and a brother. Yeah, uh, went to school with we him. Have violence, Absolutely. We have violence interrupters here. So, you know, this is what we have in our community. I was a part of the Newark Anti-Violence Coalition, which we were founders in. So in the neighborhood, when kids are going to school, their brothers and sisters from the hood, some with criminal records, who are there to make sure that there's a safe passage and also to put out a fire if there's a beef between red and blue or within sets in the community. That all has to happen at the local level. And then finally, remove school resource officers from the school. Because all you're doing is taking our children that much closer to the criminal justice system. And I think that police officers should have a residency requirement. Because when you live in the community, you function a lot differently than you when you don't. I actually like that. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad that, that there's two points that I'm really glad that you brought up. That that right there is is actually pretty dope. Um and I definitely think that that would also be a way of vetting and weeding out those who don't need to be there and don't need right. to be policing those neighborhoods. Cause you're right. Some people would be there and be like, yeah, this ain't for me. <laughs> this right. ain't for me. Uh, right. secondly, the, the mental health aspect, the mental health aspect, mm-hmm. I think is super important uh, for, on a, for a number of reasons, because I mean, as a, as a young black man, uh, myself uh, growing up in Harlem and just, all the things that I've seen in my lifetime and all the things that I've had to deal with in my lifetime. And I'm pretty sure uh, a lot of other, you know, young black men and women of, of color have had to deal with a lot of similar things. We've been suffering from PTSD for a long time. We've been suffering from, I mean, generationally, <laughs> we've Absolutely. been suffering from this and, and we've learned to cope with this in the most dysfunctional ways. And we've also been given ways to cope with this via our government. No, thank you. Uh, ways of, <laughs> of coping with this. And, and um, so I, I think that that's a very important factor that needs to be uh, dealt with and implemented, not only in our communities, but also, as you said, in the, in the, in the department as well, because you'll have officers that, come from the same communities, as you said, who's, who, who, who haven't dealt with their own stuff. Absolutely. Who haven't dealt with it. And just because you now have a, have a badge, AKA Cape doesn't That's give right. you p- permission to deal with it in ways that are the same unhealthy, dysfunctional ways. Uh, and, and as you said, you may get a call where, you know, you're, you're not equipped to deal with that. That's right. Um, or you're involved in something that you have yet to deal with, uh, uh you know, you know what I mean? You're involved in the shooting, you're involved, whatever it is you may have dealt with that, you know, you saw something that affected you a certain way. And, 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 and I know this from talking to other officers, there's not a lot of uh, aftercare in terms of that. There's not a lot of, Hey, let's talk, let's talk this out. Let's, let's make sure you're ready to continue. You're, you're right. So I run a family support organization in union County and we have in my organization, what we do is um, we have Wellness Friday, which is about self-care. Wellness Friday is when we come together. We don't talk about work. It's on a Zoom call. I have college interns, social work students, staff, and we're just talking about how was the week for you? How did it go? What went well? What didn't go well? What mm-hmm. are you struggling with? Um, what resources can we help provide for you? I know I didn't have that in law enforcement. And you're right. Dr. Joy DeGroote, um, author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, talks about the trauma 
And you're right. The trauma that is carried over from generation to generation. You talk about secondary trauma, tertiary trauma, right? Either something that if something was done to us, something we've done to ourselves or something that we saw somebody do to somebody else. All of that is traumatizing to us and it's processed so very differently. And so we have to, as she talks about letting the healing begin, we have to have healing circles in our community. Where do I go as a black man to get to heal and cry? So for yeah, 12 because, out of the, the last, because, go ahead. Because you're, no, no, no. You, I mean, I'm just, you're just hitting all these notes for me. You're smart. You're hitting it because you're right. Because not only are we still traumatized by that, but we still get traumatized every single day ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I used to do a thing called Donuts with Dad at Dion Warwick School in East Orange, a K-5 school. And the principal at the time is Watson was my fifth grade teacher. So it was a gang free school. I was doing gang prevention, intervention and suppression. And so every year, every month for eight months, I would go in on a Thursday at nine o'clock on a school day. The PTA would cook breakfast. Fathers would come in to 25 to 75 in an inner city and the children would come down from class, sit on daddy's lap. And I do a 45 minute lecture with 15 minute Q&A on a topic that the fathers told me they wanted me to bring in to discuss. And we went in from doing homework with your kid to being able to help your kid do homework up to the third, fourth grade and then making sure you got a friend that went to the eighth grade so they can help you with the other grades that you don't know. That if you got a problem with the kid's mother, but the kid still loves the father, I don't care what kind of dad you are. You need to be a one day a month dad where that kid is guaranteed that you come in on Donuts with Dad Day because they know daddy's going to show up for them and be in the building. We were getting 75 fathers when it was 25 degrees outside. The state came up and said, how are you pulling this off? Because one of the things that we said was every brother that came in, I hugged. Now, I was in a suit and tie. I hugged the brother that was in the suit and tie. I hugged the brother that I smelled weed on him at 8.30 in the morning, and I hugged the brother that I smelled that was drunk. And we did it every time. And brothers would come to me later and say, no man has ever hugged me. None. At what point does a young black man even remember being told, I love you in a non-sexual way by a man? It's mm -hmm. not happening. So we have to create these opportunities for black men to heal. We have to create the opportunity for our children to heal. We have to model the behavior that we want them to emulate. I tell brothers, I don't care if you don't like her. And don't tell me that she was a B because I'm going to tell you, you a B lover. Well, you're going to tell me, well, she wasn't a B when I met her. It was after she had the baby. Well, I'm going to tell you, you got a bad sperm count because whatever you gave her made her act that way. You got to own some of this black man. At the end of the day, the children are watching. And as Dr. Adelaide Sanford used to say to me when she was training me for, to leave my school, she says, when parents are at each other's throats and there's a child involved, tell them to always hearken back to the day when the sperm met the egg. They wasn't fighting that day. So remember that moment whenever you got to come to me to talk to me about your child when I'm in this school. And so that's right. kind of where we take it. Create the healing. We got healing circles. We have drumming circles. All of these things. I walk on Sundays with a group of um, brothers and sisters from Arts High School. We call it the Arts High Alumni, Alumni and Friends Walk. And we walk four miles in West Orange, New Jersey, around the reservoir. We were out there today in 15-degree weather. Now, it's usually 30, 40 of us, but under 30 degrees, it's down to four or five. But the four or five of us need to be there because we need it for our mental health. We need it for the camaraderie. We don't talk any time during the week. We just know that we're going to show up. We don't even call and say, are you going? We just show up and make it through the snow because these are the kinds of healthy practices that we need in our community and in our villages. Amen. Amen. Final thoughts. 
I'm hopeful. I, I think that we have a young generation on the horizon um, that is very different than the generation I came from and those that came before me. Uh, I believe that we're on our way. Uh, and I'll give you, I'll leave you with the words of Frederick Douglass who said that those who profess the faith of freedom, you deprecate agitation on men and women who want crops without plowing the ground. You want rain without thunder and lightning. You want the ocean without the awful roars of as many waters. The struggle, it may be a moral one, it may be a physical one, or maybe both, but there must be struggle. For power concedes nothing without demand. Never has, never will. Know just what any people will quietly submit to, and you know the exact measure of wrong and injustice that will be imposed upon you, and these will continue until they're resisted with with words or with blows or with both. Amen. 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 And amen again. Well said. Well said. <laughs> Resonations. Oh, today was fire. Today was Great fire. God. Today was fire, man. Oh, such a such an honor to have you on the show. Ladies and Great gentlemen, God. once again, Dr. DeLacy. <laughs> Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.